This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome to the show. I'm Graham Richardson. I hope you're having a good day. Um, There is a significant uh, proceeding going on on Parliament Hill about, you may have heard about this, about uh, the public inquiry into what happened and what went wrong during the Freedom Convoy uh, that closed borders, that uh, threatened police and uh, shut down large swaths of the economy. In particular, I'm thinking about Windsor, where auto plants were shut down, and here in Ottawa, where um, our, in the city of Ottawa, the main one of the main malls downtown, the Rideau Centre closed for three weeks straight, uh, multiple, multiple millions of dollars in losses as the uh, convoy essentially took over the city and the police uh, lost control. And that led to the prime minister and the government invoking the Emergencies Act, which is the first time they've ever done that since the War Measures Act. This act actually replaced the War War Measures Act. Um, And then the police uh, moved in. The question, the simple question that this public inquiry, this inquiry led by a judge will try to get at is whether the government overreacted, overstepped, or did they have no choice and did they act within the public interest? But around the fringes of all of that will be stories and narratives we have not heard yet with 65 witnesses testifying. Uh, Tamara Leach is there right now today. One of the leaders of the convoy. Um, There will be stories that we have not heard yet. Uh, Tamara Leach, Chris Barber, other leaders will be testifying along with members of cabinet city of Ottawa, the mayor, city councillors, police. It's going to be quite extensive. Here is the judge who is overseeing the act um, on exactly what's at stake here. Uncovering the truth is an important goal. When difficult events occur that impact the lives of Canadians, the public has a right to know what has happened. But inquiries are also forward-looking. They seek not only to understand what has occurred in the past, but also to learn from those experiences and to make recommendations for the future. That is Commissioner Paul Rouleau talking about what exactly uh, the commission is going to try to achieve. And appreciate his comments. He will hear all of the testimony. He will know more about it than anybody else because he's going to sit through absolutely everything. Um, And he's a judge, a retired judge. So... Uh, He knows the law and he knows the procedure. The question will be, though, the simple question, yes or no, did they overstep? And was the Emergencies Act required or was it not required? There is some thought out there, by the way. I know this, that if they had just, this was a parking problem, apparently, that, you know, they let them park and they let them stay and then they didn't move them out. They already had the powers to move them out. They just didn't enforce the law. Former police chief in Ottawa, Peter Slowly, would strenuously push against that, suggesting he was worried about weapons in the trucks. It turns out there were no weapons in the trucks that I know of, but he firmly believed at the time that there may be weapons in trucks and children involved. And he literally said to me as the convoy was going on, I'm not going to oversee another January 6th in Canada. That's, that was his thinking. And I'm sure in front of a judge uh, in, the, in the inquiry environment, 
there will be more of an explanation of this. Here is uh, one of the organizers, Tamara Leach. She's out on bail. She arrived in person in Ottawa this morning to get a seat at the in the gallery. Here's what she had to say. Are you going to be here all all the way? All the way. Yeah, you bet. Every day. Every day. Every day. So there you go. Have you moved on from this? Text us at seven ten ten. After the break, we're going to speak with Justin Ling, a freelance investigative journalist who was on the ground tracking the convoy, continues to track the movement online. And personally for me, as I covered it, and um, people have moved on in in other parts of the country. I understand that. But we have an extraordinary amount of turnover on our city council in Ottawa. People have decided not to run. The convoy is a factor. The convoy is a factor. Um, they're, they're, they couldn't do anything and uh, residents were absolutely, uh, felt absolutely abandoned by the police and by the, all structures in society. They felt like they were basically on their own. Some people couldn't get groceries, you know, and, and I've heard all the arguments, oh, this was free and fun loving. And it was just a big party. Uh, not every time, not every day and not every hour. Uh, there were threats. There were, uh, there were, uh, people who felt intimidated. I was yelled at all the time, especially when they recognized me as a reporter or a journalist. Um, and they did that to lots of people just for wearing masks in your own neighborhood. And then the horn honking and everything else, fireworks, you know, so all of this will be picked over piece by piece, but have you moved on from this seven ten ten? Do you care about whether the government should have done this or not? This is, you know, you've got to remember pre-Ukraine, this was the biggest story in the world. Fox News was in Ottawa. Uh, American networks were here covering it almost wall to wall. Um, at, at, at one point, apparently the White House got involved and said, do you need help? <laughs> and we had a situation where um, it, it looked like on various fronts, the police weren't doing anything. And it, it, it was a, it was a real wake up call for a lot of people. Then, you know, as the convoy expanded, you saw a different reaction in Quebec city as they tried to advance on the legislature, the national assembly there. Uh, no, they beefed up their police presence. Same thing at the Ontario legislature days later. And what it looked like from Ottawa was like, okay, the priorities are those other cities and they don't really care about this place. And it's not that simple. We had a mishmash of police, nobody in charge, really. I think, I guarantee you, we're going to hear about turf wars, confusion, lack of cohesion, no partners, temper tantrums, and, and overall a, um, an inability to effectively enforce the law. How is it that all of those people could do that for that long and then post it all on social media and bring more people in? It lasted for three weeks. I mean, three days, okay. It was three weeks. Like, think about that. I talked to people who lost their jobs, had to quit their jobs because they their businesses shut down. They had to go find, like, other work. That sort of stuff happened all the time. There's hundreds of stories like that. So I, you, you can tell from my approach here, I think this is a really important thing 
to pick apart and to examine how the capital of Canada, how the people who run it lost control of it, and how the absolute, like, no, the hot tubs and the stages and the fireworks were all a sign that the police and the authorities weren't in control. No matter how much the mayor jumped up and down and said, don't do that and get out of town and said all these threatening things, or not threatening things, but sharp things back at them about how irresponsible they are. They didn't care. There were too many of them. And all they wanted to do was rage at Trudeau and they did it. And the other element here, like when Trudeau called them a fringe and kind of marginalized them, I, I think that was number one, it was a tactical mistake. And we'll talk to others about that today. Number two, I, I don't think it was, I, I think there was a good chunk of the country up on the hill. I think there was a good chunk of the country who felt like everything had gone too far. No one was listening to them and enough of this stuff. If they were such a fringe, why did so many people cheer them on the streets? Like Canadians don't protest. Canadians don't gather in large groups like that, let alone for three weeks. You know, so I, I'm, I'm really interested in hearing more about this. We're going to talk to Justin Ling after the break about this. He was on the ground and whether there are questions that remain unanswered. Stay with us. Welcome back to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson, the public inquiry into what happened during the convoy and the invocation. Actually, the invocation of the Emergencies Act is underway. Uh, Paul Rouleau, the judge overseeing it. Um, Before we get to our next guest, I do want to read out what he has said in public today which is important. A commission's recommendations may be modest or wide ranging. They might be directed at a range of audiences, including government, public bodies, the private sector. It's also important to understand what commissions of inquiry do not do. They do not make findings of legal liability. They do not determine whether individuals have committed crimes. While inquiries seek to uncover the truth, they are not trials. Questions of civil and criminal liability are decided by courts and not commissions. That all being said, they are extraordinarily important particularly for governments who've made these decisions at the time. And many governments uh, and many police agencies were attempting to make decisions here. And boy, did it take an awful long time. And something tells me we're about to see the mess behind the scenes in a way we haven't seen before. Someone who was on the ground virtually every day before and after tracking uh, convoy participants online and in person was Justin Ling. He joins me on the phone. Hi, Justin. Hey, good afternoon. Um, Tell me what, what you're expecting uh, out of this. And can, can you pinpoint who might be most worried about what they're going to uncover here? Yeah, listen, I mean, I am anticipating that the actual testimony, and maybe I'll be wrong here, but I'm anticipating that the actual testimony is going to be a lot of what we've already heard, right? Mm. 
there's a lot of reputations to protect here. I mean, yes, the prime minister is going to testify. It will be a useful sort of uh, bookend to this whole scenario, sort of a top to bottom uh, history of, of how this started, uh, what he was briefed on, why he decided to invoke the Emergencies Act. I suppose that will be generally useful. Uh, and we're also going to hear for the first time in quite some time from some of the convoy organizers. But I don't think we should expect any massive bombs. I mean, we know what you know what everyone's position is. The prime minister says it was absolutely necessary to restore order in the capital and to open up those uh, borders that had been blockaded. The organizers are going to say that this is a, a, a tyrannical government that has invoked the act um, to quash their freedom of expression and that uh, the vaccines are dangerous and so on and so forth. I mean, we've heard all of these songs sung before. What I'm really looking for is the documents. Documents can't lie in the same way. I want to know what the intelligence briefings said, what they were telling the prime minister in the lead up to uh, the Emergencies Act being invoked. I want to see some of the, uh, potentially some more of the financial documents that underpinned this multi-million dollar occupation uh, and where some of that money uh, may have been spent. Obviously, there has been some lawsuits already. We've learned some of that, but this could be the first uh, real time we've seen uh, the full picture of the finances of the occupation. If you were a lead police officer, though, whether it's Chief Slowly at the time or others, or city leadership, for instance, wouldn't you worry about what's going to come out in terms of, uh, you know, opening up the, the behind, which I know, you know, as well, there, there was chaos behind the scenes. There always is, but especially on this one, wouldn't you worry yeah. about that? We've heard some opening statements already from the Ottawa Police Service and the OPP, and clearly their, their stance is to sort of laud their good work. And, and there's some logic to this, right? I mean, going into the, this commission, uh, the Ottawa Police Service is going to take the line that uh, they uh, kind of kept the constant position that people can come and protest, they can come be disruptive, they can come be annoying if need be in the capital, and that we should always protect that right. And on that on that bit, they're 100% correct. I mean, you know, I, I think uh, sometimes in sort of the frustration of this whole thing, we did lose sight of the fact that the Ottawa Police position is that people can come and demonstrate straight in the capital with relative impunity so long as they kind of uh, you know operate within the law um, so I think that's gonna be the Ottawa police position now where the you know the rubber is really gonna hit the road is in figuring out just how much preparation they actually did just how much intelligence they were actually getting about the real uh, aims and motivations of this convoy turned occupation, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think looking back, there is so many points at which the Ottawa Police Service could have made decisions that would have uh, kept the city sane for those you know, three weeks in the winter, you know, deciding not to let these massive trucks onto Wellington Street, um, you know, preparing for a prolonged occupation, not a weekend as they originally thought, you know, more resources, more personnel, um, you know, more equipment, more help from the federal and provincial governments from the outset, instead of waiting waiting days and weeks to finally call in that support. There's going to be a lot of, um, you know, armchair quarterbacking of those decisions, and rightfully so, because I think looking back, we can say the Ottawa police did screw this up at several uh, points along the way, even if their original intention to preserve that right to be disruptive, to, to preserve that right to do civil disobedience was laudable. I, I, I understand that sentiment too, and I also think, I know, you know, Chief Slowly uh, comes from the Toronto force where he was involved in the G20. And, and uh, you know, the demands on police uh, to not be caught in something like that where they're seen as being excessive, uh, it's, it's very difficult. You know, it's very difficult. It's, and, and, and now you, you talk to people who live down there 
um, you know, and who live down there, it's like, no, it's time for the police to be police to do your job. Yeah. And on the in point, the critical in point where they let them park, where they, they thought this was just another, you know, yellow vest kind of weekend protest. Why did they think that? Were they getting intelligence from the West on the numbers that were coming? Did they have any informants? All they, I mean, did, how much social media searching did they did, Mm -hmm. did they do as they, as they started to roll? Because it was pretty obvious how big it was going to be even weeks before. That's right. And, you know, I've published intelligence reports that were handed to me by a police source uh, that indicate that CSIS was telling the Ottawa police uh, as early as the second week of January, days before they actually arrived in the capital, that there was uh, maybe an equal likelihood that they stay for the weekend as there was that they would stay for a prolonged period of time. Mm. Um, There was intelligence being sent to the Ottawa Police Service that said, hey, these guys are talking about staying indefinitely. And it became very clear as time went on that the Ottawa Police Service either didn't read that intelligence briefing, didn't believe it, or just didn't heed that warning or just chose to act optimistically. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps, you know, we know the Ottawa Police Service was in contact with some of the organizers. Uh, perhaps they chose to believe the organizers, uh, what they were saying over the phone, over what CSIS was telling them that was their you know, real motivations, their real plan. Uh, That's what we're going to find out, hopefully. Um, But, you know, I I, I have to underscore, I think we're going to learn that through the emails and the briefings and the uh, intelligence assessments that will be tabled, maybe not so much through the testimony, because there has been a lot of prep that's gone into this. There has been a lot of uh, rehearsing for for this commission. And uh, I think you rarely learn as much from what's being said as, as you learn from what's been written. Justin Ling, great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. That's Justin Ling, freelance journalist who was on the ground. I want to get to some of your text. No, I am not past this. It was a peaceful protest and Trudeau trampled on our rights, symbolic of the horses trampling on protesters. Well, those protesters, I was there. They were given um, several days of warning to get out of the way and right up until the moment they moved the, the horses in. So, okay, I get your point though. Another texter from Oak, Oakville. What happened in Ottawa was not harmless and not a party. My daughter lives and works in the market. She was harassed on the way to and from work for wearing a mask. Overstepping big time, says Leamington, Ontario. I will never forget what Trudeau did to trample on our rights, all based on lies. Nobody wants to or is willing to take responsibility. Cover your A at all costs is the goal. No, I haven't moved on. All Trudeau had to do was put an end to the protest. To put an end to that protest was go talk to them. This is all on the leadership or lack of it. Fair enough. Uh, I take your point on that. The only thing is, who does he talk to? Does he talk to the, does he go out and talk to or arrange a meeting with the people that want to overthrow the government? Because that's what they wanted to do. They said it in their manifesto. They said it in news conferences. They wanted to form government with the opposition, veto any new, um, any new mandates specifically on COVID and then they wanted to form something with the governor general. So it's pretty hard to negotiate with people like that. Um, but I hear you that, uh, did he make it better or worse? There are those who strongly feel like he made it much, much better. I'm Graham Richardson. This is news talk. Uh, News talk today. Keep texting us at 71010. 
Uh, when we come back, we will speak with someone still out of power. Here's what you need to know. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Uh, Boy, we've really moved on as a country from Tropical Storm Fiona. Um, But some people are still stuck. 20 days after Fiona ripped through Atlantic Canada... A very powerful storm, many trees uprooted, lots of damage, and lots of people without power. There are still people without power. 500 Maritime Electric customers without power. Taylor Zippel is a woman from Canavoy PEI. 20 days, she is one of them. And Taylor joins us now. You still don't have power. No, that's right. You still don't have power. What has this been like? Did you ever think it would go this long? Uh, I know I knew to prepare myself um, just based on the last hurricane that we had that we were without for a week. Um, So we prepared for a week, which is, you know, common for here. Sure. Um, But it's so frustrating to have three kids, both, you know, adults in the home work, full-time jobs, um, and have no power, no heat um, to come home to in the evenings. And it's not exactly uh, the balmy season on the island either, right? It's getting cooler. No, it's dipping very cold at night. Um, and whatever it is outside, it's usually close to 10 degrees colder in the house. Oh. How, how old are your kids? They are 5, 10, and 11. Oh, boy, that's a handful. That's a handful. And um, so there's, what have they told you so far? Like, what is the delay here? Um, they haven't really said much our mast had broken off of our home during the storm Mm -hmm. so we immediately got that fixed it was fixed within the first five days so that when they did come out we would be ready to be hooked up with the rest of our road Um, and on day 15 they had set up our road and we didn't have power but so did a few other houses so we kind of let it go Obviously, there was a reason why there's other houses without two. Sure. Um, but yesterday morning, they had came out and hooked up my neighbor. Um, and when they hooked him up, they turned out and left. Uh, that's the best, huh? I bet you that just drives you up the wall. So, <laughs> so how, I, how far away was your neighbor? Right next door? Yeah. So um, he's actually my brother. He's just, he's across the road and down a house, but we're in the country. So it's about half a kilometer down the road. And and just just so I'm clear... Honestly, you've had no answers yet? Like, you can't get an answer after 20 days about what's taking so long? Nope. I've had no answers. Um, They said that they have record that our mast is fixed and ready to be hooked up um, and that they would be out to do it. So I had called yesterday after they left us hanging um, and asked if they could come back um, because it's a, a simple fix now that the mast is back up to hook us back up. Right. So five trucks came down and I got all excited and they were working and working and working and they hooked up my neighbor directly across the road and left again. And we were left in the dark again last night. Wait a second. So, so not only your brother's place, but across the road yesterday as well. Yeah. Nice. Jeez. Um, 
and, and I'm being a bit of a wise guy, but I, I can imagine with kids and what you're going through, it's just really, really frustrating. Uh, you didn't have damage, is that right? It's just this This is the thing, that the, the mask came down, and now it's fixed, and you're just waiting? Yep, exactly. Yeah, there's no damage. There's no, we don't have any trees, so there's no trees on lines. Um, there's no, like, the mast was a very simple fix, too. It was just kind of bent, and that's been fixed since, I'm going to say, the Monday after the storm, the Tuesday after the storm, maybe at most. Mm. So how much, uh, did you, I, I assume, did you have to throw out food, or do you have a generator? How are you, how are you managing? Um, we do have a generator, but since we both work during the day, it's only turned on in the evening, so we've lost everything in our fridge. Um, and then the things that thaw easily in the freezer, so like the French fries, mm-hmm. um, hash browns, stuff like that, we had to throw all that out. But our meat has been staying frozen, um, so we're lucky to that advantage. But it's hard um, to not even be able to buy a jug of milk because it's going sour by the next morning. And, you know, the kids are looking for their milk and their cereal and stuff, and we can't, we can't offer them anything. They also don't have... The things that kids want these days, right? They're, or do you? Do you? Do you have? Uh, you you must be able to escape to other places and friends who have power, but that wears thin after a while too. Yes, um, we we do have uh, my grandparents who live on our road that have power, so we do go down there. Um, but it's you know a lot when there's kids and my, my brother's kids are there and yeah, everyone's trying to use the same dishwasher and the same laundry and the same shower. Um, and so no, no indication yet from anybody about when this is going to end. No, other than that they had predicted that everyone will be set up by tomorrow. That was like set on our news. That's the only time that we've given that we've been given. Taylor, we wish you luck. Uh, it's hard enough being a mom and a working mom, but with no power for 20 days, boy, that's that's a that's a tough one. We really appreciate you taking time to talk to us. Thank you. No, thank you very much. All right, good luck. Jeez. You know, like, you, uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you lose power. When people hear you've lost power, like, ah, you can just kind of roll with it. And then, and then you, you realize how much we rely on electricity. I'm staring at three screens. I have a light over me. Uh, I've got my phone that's plugged in. Um, and that's not even food and hot coffee. You know, you wake up in the morning, make a coffee. Can't do that. Go grab a snack that might be cold, a piece of fruit. No, can't do that. You know, and, and then you layer on the kids and the frustration. Hot showers in some cases. No. Washing, laundry. No. You know, everywhere you turn, electricity's there. So, boy, that must be really really frustrating um on the uh on the uh the freedom convoy investigation before we move on we're getting quite a few texts these are some of the local texts on it convoy clowns manipulated by oil and gas money attempt to damage trudeau on the carbon tax okay not sure about that but uh there certainly was a strong western presence in uh in, on the streets of Ottawa, and uh, we will hear, maybe we will hear something about that money. Where did it come from? And, you know, uh, like Justin was saying earlier in the show, documents and primary documents that don't lie and aren't aren't 
you know, spun and coached. Um, they tell a very strong story about what exactly went on. The provincial government needs to enforce the laws. Their lack of timely enforcement dragged on this. As soon as they got what they needed and began acting, things got better before the Emergencies Act. Yeah, and they didn't move until the Emergencies Act, though, fully move when it was, uh, until it was enacted. You know what I'm not clear on, folks? And I, I, I want an answer from this, and I should know this. I don't think the police required the powers under the Emergencies Act to gather like they did and to clear the streets. I believe Acting Chief Bell told us at the time they cordoned off the downtown with a hard cordon, meaning you can't come in, you can't come out unless you live here and you have to show your ID to prove you live or work here to get back in. That is the kind of restriction of freedom of movement, I believe, that the Emergencies Act allowed them to impose. So I'm actually looking at the specific powers it gave police as an interesting part of this investigation. Of course, the other part of it, the most, one of the most explosive parts of it, freezing of bank accounts. They told us at the time, off the record, on the record, they are doing this because they want to pressure the people to stand down and leave after three weeks. And how do you do that? Well, this act gave them the ability to freeze bank accounts back home so families couldn't use money that was sitting in the bank accounts. Those bank accounts apparently were unfrozen quite quickly after the convoy was cleared. I'm Graham Richardson. This is News Talk Today. Stay with us. We're back in just a moment on land conservation. Staying on the story, News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Thanks for being here. Uh, we spent a lot of time over the last few months, few years really, talking about, you know, housing and where to live and the scarcity of places to live. And um, there's a lot of pressure to expand where humans in Canada can live. And that's putting pressure in many ways on protected areas in and around our cities. Um, but there is a new large, one of the largest land conservation projects in Canada's history being announced, the Nature Conservancy of Canada, announcing with the federal and provincial governments today, a very large purchase of private land. They say it's the largest conservation project in Canada's history. 145,000 hectares, that is the size of Toronto, three times the size of Montreal, $46 million. Joining us now to talk about this is Kristen Ferguson, Program Director of Ontario Region's Large Landscapes at the Nature Conservancy of Canada. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Kristen, why is this important? Uh, First of all, where is this land situated for people and why do you think it's important? 
So about uh, nine hours north of Toronto uh, in Hearst, which is approximately the kind of the middle of the province, maybe yeah. halfway between Lake Superior and James Bay, there's the town of Hearst. And just south of that is this amazing expanse of property, uh, which we call the Boreal Wildlands uh, Project. And as you mentioned, it's the largest private conservation project in Canada's history. And and it is, was it, um, if you didn't do this and get this deal done, would it have been targeted for development or is this just an area that's important on its own that you just want to make sure stays the same? It's actually a little bit of both. There's really high biodiversity values on the site. So awesome plants, animals, ecosystems, and we wanted to protect those features. While at the same time, the boreal forest is facing a unique set of threats. They are things like you mentioned, like increasing pressure for development. Um, Also, um, a lot of these areas are industrial and can be subject to aggressive forestry practices or extensive road building. And even in this area, there's some instances of the boreal forest, one of the lungs of the earth that's helping us all breathe, being turned into pasture land. So it was an increasing area of importance and urgency to do this work. So we were so glad that this opportunity lined up the way it did. Um, not as a nature uh, a naturalist myself or a, um, an activist in any way, you know, I look at the map and I say, geez, you know, Canada has a lot of space and we're all crowded around the border. Um, why would I, I'm assuming you would say that may be true, but this is important too. in such a remote location. Uh, why would people living in our cities uh, need to know about this? And why do you say it's an important issue? What a great question. I think that when working in Northern Ontario, we sort of pictured it as what we might like to have done in Toronto, in Southern Ontario, 100 years ago. Mm. It's a chance to actually build corridors, which make our landscapes and and our world, frankly, more resilient, uh, more connected. And as climate change pushes species, species northward. So as the climate warms, things that are here will eventually be there. We want to make sure they have the places to go so we're not further exacerbating that crisis of losing plants and animals to extinction. So that's a big part of it, um, in addition to to what is there on the site. And it's actually a huge opportunity, this project, um, to engage um, with uh, local First Nations communities. So there's a real people element to the project, along with the the very cool plants and animals mm-hmm. angle that I mentioned. Will people, like, is there going to be, um, like, will people be able to go there and appreciate it as it is? Like, will there be hike, uh, hiking trails and, and that sort of thing? Or is it is it going to just stay natural? Well, most of it will remain just sort of as is because it is so uh, ginormous, I think, mm-hmm. is the only word to use. It's hard mm-hmm. to get from one side to the other. So my uh, colleagues and I have been talking about where would we put that hiking trail that's close to the entrance, close to Highway 11, and a place where people can really get out and experience this. Maybe on a road trip across Ontario or maybe as a special destination. There were so many Canadians that helped support this, so we definitely want to give people a chance to experience it. But not too many people, right? That's always the balance. Yes, visitor management considerations are huge for us. So mm. get people to nature so they care about it. Make sure it's in areas that can handle those it, those pressures and won't be negatively affected. But yeah, good observation. You talked about redoing Toronto or, you know, getting a second chance at it. What do you think about when you hear uh, many, you know, politicians, developers um, talk about the housing crisis and the fact that there's not enough housing or it's too expensive and we're not building in enough places, and we have to relook at some of these protected places. 
most of them won't do that publicly. They won't say that publicly because they know it's very, very sensitive. Um, what, what, what do you think about that issue? Well, the Nature Conservancy of Canada were uh, non-advocacy, uh, non-adversary. I understand. We don't tend to, to comment I understand. on the um, government policy side of things, but I would just say that it's been really amazing how our government partners have um, come on board to be a part of this. Um, the provincial and federal governments were two of the biggest funders to this project, so I do see those commitments to protection um, from those entities, which is really inspiring uh, to know that that support is there at multiple levels of government to, to do more protected areas. And, we do and, have to address it all, you're uh, right. I understand, I understand, and I didn't mean to put you in a difficult position, and I understand you're not an advocate, that's fine. Um, and I, I would assume as well, the other side of the argument I was putting to you is that there is a lot of public support for this kind of thing. I would say that's true for sure. We saw people giving to this project at numbers of people we'd never seen, hundreds of people contributing, uh, donors who were new to NCC. We had uh, attention from international foundations, which was very exciting for, for us. So you're right. I can feel this groundswell of public support for protected areas and it just feels like this is the time to capitalize on that. And I think the Nature Conservancy of Canada has proved we can do this work at scale and, and we're ready for the next challenge. Kristen Ferguson, thanks so much. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Have All right. That's Kristen Ferguson from the Nature Conservancy of Canada on a successful story for them. Uh, the largest private land conservation project in Canada's history. And it is a massive area. And uh, somebody texting in, Graham, have you driven up through northern Ontario? It's all forest. There's no way it will be developed. There's nothing on Highway 11. That's Don in Pembroke. Yes, I have. In fact, I've driven across the country several times uh, from the west and uh, going west. And boy, you know, when you're coming, when you're driving east and you clear the prairies and you hit Ontario, you're like, yes, here we are. We're making progress. Nope. Nope. There's a lot of land up there. <laughs> you can you can clear the prairies. I haven't done this in years, but you can clear the prairie. We drove from Calgary, so you can clear the prairies to the border of Winnipeg. I want to or border of Manitoba. I want to say in uh, twelve to twelve hours. I might be wrong on that. It's been many years, and then it's like twenty four to drive through Ontario. Yeah, and just uh, stop at Wawa. Um. When we come back, Scott Reed is joining us, uh, overhyped and underplayed. We're going to talk about the uh, extraordinary debut of the new Premier of Alberta. He'll have something to say on that. Um, and also on this inquiry into the, um, into the use of the Emergencies Act and what it, what it means for the people in government and his take on what Trudeau, the stance Trudeau should take when he's called to testify. I'm Graham Richardson. Thanks for being here. News Talk Today returns after the break. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Thanks for being here on News Talk Today. Now it's time. Great jobs and opportunity. In this election, here's what I want to do. Or underplayed. 
Scott Reed, CTV News political commentator, former communications director with Prime Minister Paul Martin, joins us on the line. Hi, Scott. Good afternoon. I'm making my way back to you, babe. I'm on my way to Ottawa as we speak. Oh, yeah. Coming up to the little burg, eh? Back to eastern Ontario for you. That's right. Um, I, now, I don't think of Ottawa, and I know this is going to get me in trouble. I don't think of Ottawa as eastern Ontario. I think of eastern Ontario as a unique space that exists basically between Trenton, Ontario, and Ottawa. Like that's like, So, is Ottawa northern Ontario? Like, no, where would it be? It's, 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 it's national capital. It's its <laughs> okay. own thing. It's its own thing. All it's, right. It's All its right. Own, it floats in the amber space <laughs> of uh, almightiness, you know? <laughs> All right. Uh, anyway, it'll be good to have you back in town. Um, boy, you know, the getting ready for Danielle Smith stuff was, was something. Uh, and then there was that press conference, which I think the, the, the BC premier w- was commenting on like even today, like it still reverberates. Um, I just want to run it quickly. People have heard it, but here, here is Danielle Smith and she's since backed down from some of these comments. I don't think I've ever experienced a situation in my lifetime where a person was fired from their job or not allowed to watch their kids play hockey or not allowed to go visit a loved one in long-term care or hospital or not allowed to go get on a plane to either go across the country to see family or even travel across the border. So they have been the most discriminated against group that I've ever witnessed in my lifetime. She has since not apologized but said she didn't mean to offend all the other people who have been. How bad was this, Scott? Well, for her, not that bad, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, for any normal person, for any person who has, you know, uh, the shame chromosome, it's bad. But she doesn't really care. I mean, you know, to be, you know, and I know I'm ascribing motive and all sorts of stuff and talking like I know her. But, like, I've watched this woman in public life off and on for 20 years. And mm-hmm. the reality is that this is a revealing uh, comment. It just tells you what she thinks, how bad her instincts are, how ahistorical her sense of anything is, and how, you know, uh, de minimis she is in so-called regret. So uh, this, is what, this is what she thinks. And, and, and I think the, the broader significance, and I don't want to diminish the specific significance of it, because the signif- specific significance is, is really, uh, you know, Bad take. Such, it's just Brutal such a take. casually, yeah. overwhelmingly ignorant thing to say. But the general significance is that buckle up. You're going to get more of this. Yeah. This is who she is. And um, and if you're a member of the UCP, maybe you're pounding the table with delight. But understand, this person lacks the instincts and judgment to avoid walking into an electric fence. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's you never say never in politics, but I wouldn't bet futures on this person. Well, and generally speaking, Albertans, I know, they like sticking it to Ottawa. They like being contrarian, and they like being conservative, generally speaking. But there are lines, and one of the lines my experience has been is they don't like to be laughed at. They're a serious place. They're the they're they're an economic engine of the country. And when this kind of stuff happens, they look like you know a backwater, and they don't like it. You know, no, and they- she's playing with fire here. That's right. She, they, Albertans don't want to be Mississippi North, and yeah. they don't, and 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 they're and it isn't Mississippi North. It's a place of uh, prosperity and uh, skill. Um, and you can have disagreements about economic issues and other issues without descending in this territory. I'll tell you one other thing. When it comes to the overhyped and underplayed thing, mm-hmm. I think it's underplayed as 
a federal factor. And I think, you know, I've talked about this a, a couple of times over the last couple of days, but, you know, for Pierre Polyev, the new federal conservative leader, he traffics in a lot of the same sort of language. He traffics much more skillfully. And, and I'm not accusing him of being discriminatory and, 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 and obtuse in this way, but he uses a bunch of the same labels. Freedom. We're going to fight for freedom. These vaccine mandates are awful. And uh, so he, he works in this area, but Pierre Polyev is clever, skilled, experienced, and strategic. She mm-hmm. is not. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the challenges is that she will um, face voters uh, before he does, in all likelihood. Mm-hmm. And he does not want her to be seen as a definitional harbinger of what he is. And so she represents a little bit of risk to him. If I was him at some point, I would make certain I find an opportunity to split ways and distinguish myself from her because he doesn't want there to be any conflation in their brands. Yeah. And yet another reminder to those of us on camera, broadcasters who cover politics even, this is hard. <laughs> being a leader, and okay, she's won the party. Politics and being out there like this, just because you've been on television or behind a microphone or in front of cameras, this is a different game. And she's finding that out right away. This would have been uh, no big deal on talk radio. This is a very big deal as the Premier of Alberta. Yeah, and I don't think that she really uh, appreciates um, you know, the, the, the weightiness of those sorts of obligations and the obligation to speak for and act in the interest of, um, those who aren't just in agreement with you. And, and the reason, and I'm not just bashing without knowledge, uh, my number one piece of evidence of that is look at her history, mm-hmm. look at her past, look at the way in which she conducted herself as an official opposition leader. We've never seen the like of it anywhere in the Westminster model yeah. in, anywhere yeah, yeah. in the Commonwealth. And I know An she was, and she, who, she, she's not new to politics. I know she was in politics before, but there is that thing that, you know, that a lot of people on my side of the mic think they can do it quickly um, before we get, we have to go. Um, I want your take on the risks for government in front of the um, Emergencies Act hearings and, and what you think Trudeau should try to try to achieve when he's out there, because that's another challenging one for him. So I think there's a lot of risk. Um, you know, first of all, there's just an inherent risk. This will be the third time in our history that a prime minister has appeared before a judicial inquiry under oath testifying. First was Sir John A. Macdonald during the uh, uh, the CPR scandal, the railway scandal. The second was my old boss, Mr. Martin. I was there and working with him at the time when he was asked to testify at the Gomery Committee. And now it'll be Trudeau. So I, I think that there's plenty for Trudeau to do here. But just having the prime minister, having ministers in that judicial context where they're being cross-examined, the, the, the visibility of it, the, 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 the imagery of it, the iconography of it, it's uncomfortable and it's full of, it's fraught with danger. On a more substantive level, I think that if I were Trudeau, what I want to be doing is making certain that no one's engaging in um, revisionism. Mm. And People want to apply some narrow test of, well, you know, did you have the right to invoke the act? Did you meet some technical legal thing? And then the conservatives will act like, oh, my God, see, this was an abuse of power. He needs to establish that there's a dual test. There's a common sense test. 
when a city is ground to a halt for three weeks, when people are trapped in their apartment buildings because they're, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're handicapped and they can't get out, or you know, people who run small businesses find that they cannot actually uh, function. Uh, women, kids can't walk down the street without being screamed at and harassed. That that's the common sense test of enough is enough, and we have to bring the hammer down. We may not want to bring the hammer down, but if it's the only tool available to us, well, better to swing at than sit back and do nothing. That's the common sense test. And if I was Trudeau, without going over the top and without too aggressively attacking my, you know, trying to look like I'm being super partisan or political about it. I'll be making certain that I establish that test is as resonant and as significant as is the technical legal legislative test. Risky and interesting and uh, important questions to be answered. And we will uh, watch that. Scott Reed, always great to have you on Overhyped and Underplayed. Thanks so much. See you, my friend. All right. Talk soon in Eastern Ontario or well, the national capital, sort of Eastern Ontario. Okay. It's not, uh, yeah. thanks for this Um, when we come back we're going to talk about healthcare spending and the money and where it goes because there's a lot of it and how much governments are going to actually take a hard look at what people are getting for that money because over and over again we are seeing now if not a crumbling or collapsing certainly a strained and crippled healthcare system I'm Graham Richardson. Stay with us. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Um, it seems everywhere we turn, the healthcare system is under significant pressure. Uh, th- that's an understatement. Whether it's uh, trying to get your parents seen for some issue, or maybe your kid needs to get to emerge with a high fever and the doctor's office is closed. Maybe you don't have a family doctor. Uh, all ages, um, you know, maybe you need a hip replacement or a knee replacement. Um, we, we are seeing things that we certainly haven't seen in my lifetime in terms of all at once, a staffing crunch, a post-pandemic environment, and a system under tremendous strain. And at the same time, spending in Canada is, it, it, it is extraordinary. It is uh, a lot of money. Steve Staples, National Director of Policy and Advocacy at the Canadian Health Coalition, joins us now. Um, Hi, Graham. Thanks for joining us. Look, uh, I, I hear this all the time. The opposition will say you're not spending enough. And so the, the pressure is on to spend more. And then we, it doesn't it doesn't seem how can you track that spending? And is is there a way to do that? There is so much money going into the system. You're right. There's a lot of money going into the system. Uh, the Canadian Institute for Health Information has uh, pegged 2021 at over uh, 300 uh, 300 billion going in, and um, a lot of that comes. Three quarters of that is uh, is from governments. About another quarter of that is uh, from private sector or just people paying out of pocket. Mm. Uh, so it's a lot of money. And um, the federal government in the last budget, um, you know, they, what's happening is uh, everyone's pushing the bill around the table after it comes to be delivered. You know, and right. uh, 
the federal government uh, says to the provinces, uh, look, we need better outcomes. Uh, we need better accountability on the money we're sending to you. And the provinces are saying, uh, butt out. Uh, it's our jurisdiction. Just uh, send us the check. And, and we so, need more uh, because it's, it used to be 50-50. It's not even close anymore. Well, you know, it's a bit of sausage making around that, depending on okay. how you want how you want to. Get That's into the provincial that. perspective, right? You, you you got it. I mean, certainly it was fifty fifty uh, back in the day when the federal government came into funding uh, health care, uh, but that was for doctors and hospitals. Okay. So the, you know, we spend a lot more on other things now than back then. Like for instance. Uh, the amount that we spend on drugs, Graham, is more than doctors. Now, mm-hmm. drugs are really eating up a big chunk of the budget, and uh, that wasn't the case uh, back in the day. Uh, so it depends on how you calculate it. But the federal government says, you know, they contribute about a third, and the provinces are saying, no, no, it's about a quarter, and you should spend more. Okay. And that is an, it's just, uh, you're, you're giving me PTSD from Premier's conferences I've covered. <laughs> It's the same thing every time they rattle their sabers. Whoever's in Ottawa says, oh, you know, whatever. And then they come out with a deal. Okay. But more importantly for the public, how is this sustainable? Like it, it feels like it's not, it feels like we are at an impasse here where something structural has to change. And, and I'm not advocating, you know, that, that, that the system fundamentally change but certainly the status quo does not appear to be working in most provinces. Well, you're right. I mean, people are really frustrated and the stories of people literally dying in, in waiting rooms or hosp- or, you know, ambulances lined up uh, is, is frightening for people. And, and what's bad is that, you know, the more that people uh, are delayed in getting treatment for their conditions, uh, the, the costs go up because the, the treatment down the road becomes even greater. Um, so we're in a bit of a perfect storm coming out of the pandemic uh, where, you know, we were we were at o- over 80 percent capacity before the pandemic. And then mm-hmm. the pandemic added a whole bunch more stresses onto that. Now the workers are burned out. Uh, they're leaving uh, the profession and the provinces, many of them are turning to for profit providers which is really not going to help because what happens is it drains doctors and nurses from our public system, our hospitals, they start working in the private sector. Uh, that creates more of a problem in the hospitals and it increases costs for the provinces as because uh, these caregivers get paid more in the private sector. So they're really kind of heading down the wrong road. Is there a solution that's not that? You bet. You know, I mean, really, we've got to get through this, this impasse between the provinces and the federal government, uh, the Canadian Health Coalition has said, look, uh, we, the, the federal government has committed to new programs like pharmacare, like dental care, like safe long-term care, which we totally applaud. Um, but at the same time, they're going to need provincial cooperation uh, to get some of those programs through. So what we need is a new grand bargain that the federal government says, okay, we're going to put more money in. But you provinces and territories, we don't want to see any more cuts. We want to see that money go into health care. No more $500 checks being mailed to everybody while we're giving you more money for health care because we want to see improved outcomes. And along the way, we want a pharmacare program and a dental program, which will, you know, take pressure off the system because filled prescriptions mean empty emergency rooms, Graham. If people get the kind of care early on, the front end mm-hmm. care, we can keep them under those emergency rooms.
but and I just want to come back to this quickly though. Um, a new arrangement, some kind of a new deal, uh, without a major reconstruction of the structure of the healthcare system, without, for instance, taking taking certain procedures even more so into the private sector to relieve pressure on the public system, because you say that's not the only thing that happens. That might that might move a list, but people go to the private sector, and that hurts the public uh, the public system. Yeah, yeah, it's just rearranging chairs on, on the Titanic. Uh, it's uh, it's not going it's not going to help the system and it's going to make it worse. So this is uh, you know I understand people kind of wanting to shake things up and 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 you know try to to do something new, um, but that's not terribly new. That's in fact the old way. You know mm. that's the that's old where we way came, of doing yeah. things. Yeah, and that's why we have a great public system. And uh, we presented to the uh, federal government this week our presentations on healthcoalition.ca. People can check it out. And we're saying move forward with these programs, increase federal funding to the provinces, but let's make sure that that funding comes with strings so that uh, we get better health care outcomes for all Canadians with our with the large amount of dollars that we spend now. Steve Staples from Canadian Health Coalition. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. All right. That's one perspective, and he's essentially uh, pushing it, saying, do not go down this road, and you watch. Um, many provinces are going to have a hard look at this because they're under not only political pressure, but also, um, you know, like pressure, well, political pressure from the public, right? Like, why can't I get in to get this thing looked at? Why can't I get a family doctor? It just seems, you know, the system is so big and mainly in my experience is in Ontario, but I've lived in Alberta as well. And it's the same thing. The system feels so big that I've heard people say, you stick a fire hose of money in there, you're still not going to solve this problem because expectations are high and um, demands are many fold. Demands are many fold. And post pandemic, lack of staff, lack of nurses, we're closing. Uh, ERs during uh, certain points in parts of uh, all provinces are restricting hours because they don't have the staff. It's a very, very big problem. Uh, when we come back, we're going to have a look uh, down south in Washington, the final public for now anyway, um, hearing on January 6th. It's underway right now this afternoon. And one of the things they're looking at and we'll delve into is the state of mind of the president on January 6th. Um, whenever they have been up, they know how to get attention, this committee, and that will not change today. We're going to have a quick look at that when we come back on News Talk today. And also when we come back, we will wrap up the show talking about Dan Riskin, talking with Dan Riskin about the cooperating sperm. I'm not making this up. The notion that the sperm seeks out the egg may not be the whole story stay with us we're back in a moment news talk today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. The vast weight of evidence presented so far 
has shown us that the central cause of January 6th was one man, Donald Trump, whom many others followed. That is Republican Liz Cheney. That is today, the final January 6th hearing. Here she is again talking about the role of Donald Trump in January 6th. And then he refused for hours to disband his rioting supporters and instruct them to leave the Capitol, even when he was begged repeatedly to do so. None of this is normal or acceptable or lawful in our republic. The committee delving into the state of mind of the president at the time in January, on January 6th and what that has meant and what that meant for rioters. Here's Cheney again. Including about efforts to obstruct our investigation and conceal key facts. Always uh, interesting, uh, to say the least. Uh, this committee has been able to capture the public's imagination. Larry Haas is a former White House official. And senior fellow at the, he's now a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council. He joins us now. What don't we know? Is there more ground to be covered here? Because this committee, in an extraordinarily television-friendly way, has been able to keep the public's attention. Can they do it again for this final one today, do you think? Well, it all depends on what part of the public you're talking about. There, right. You know, a good share of the public is absolutely riveted by this, and uh, there is no hearing that they won't watch because there are further and further details and it just fleshes out the story in particular how central uh, Donald Trump really was to it. Uh, On the other hand, um, I don't think there are going to be revelations of the kind that create a new storyline or that bring a new element. It's really just more flesh on the bone, but I don't want to minimize it because each time there's a hearing, some of this flesh is, you know, absolutely um, uh, extraordinary. And, and, and we do need to say again, in this environment, especially in the United States, this was supposed to be the peaceful transfer of power. The very existence of the president addressing that crowd is beyond unprecedented the notion that he is publicly shaming his vice president for not stopping and reversing what has been uh, confirmed as a free and fair election in itself is extraordinary, not to mention everything that happened afterwards. That's right. And in fact, if you, if you ask Americans just out of this environment, just in general, what, what are we most proud of? when it comes to our system of government. Uh, Obviously, freedom, uh, democracy, tolerance, pluralism. But you wouldn't have to go too far down the list before someone would say, we show the world through the peaceful transfer of power that democracy works. That's a common refrain mm-hmm. in America. So that just shows you how absolutely extraordinary this entire episode has been in the long course of more than two centuries of American history. How is it playing out in the, um, the House and Senate races, do you think? Does it vary across the country in terms of uh, where you sit on January 6th and Mr. Trump? Oh, there's no question about that. Uh, I mean, if you look at 
hard red states, that is heavily Republican-controlled states, we're, we're not going to see elections that in, in which it's um, kind of like, I won't vote for a Republican, even in this Republican state, because of the singular thing that happened in and around January 6th. I mean, we're not seeing that. Uh, unlike, for instance, in Watergate in the mid-1970s, where mm-hmm. even Republicans, long-standing Republicans, would say, I'm, I'm just not voting Republican over this. I, I think the country is so polarized at this point that uh, if you're uh, a Republican, that is, if you're a part of the hardcore Republican base, this is not shaking you. Mm. And in fact, uh, uh, you know, inflation uh, and some of our other economic problems, as well as as social issues, are probably what you're focused on. But certainly, if you're left of center, uh, or even in the somewhere near the middle, uh, these these hearings, these reminders, uh, will reinforce your desire not just to vote Democratic, but actually to come out and vote. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a midterm election, and midterms tend to have lower voting than presidential elections. And uh, I think you may see something different this year because th- this, in combination with, you know, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the abortion decision, as well as inflation, we've got a lot of hot button issues now. They're going to drive people to the polls, whether they are Democratic, Republican, or somewhere in between. Some in the Republican Party, though, must be saying, like, enough of this guy like i I appreciate the hardcore but there must there are some saying this has become an albatross the trump albatross well and also not just that but also they're just personally disgusted yes i mean they're you know these are principled conservatives (coughs) excuse me people like bill crystal uh people like max boot um, this, there is a, Liz Cheney, Adam mm-hmm. Kinzinger. Mm-hmm. I, I, if I had to estimate, maybe somewhere around five to ten percent of the Republican Party, as personified by the people that I just mentioned, who uh, will continue to vote Democratic or not vote uh, because they won't pull the lever for a Trump-dominated. Republican Party mm. in close elections. That's a lot of people. That is. I mean, that, yeah. you know, we tend to have close elections here in America. Mm-hmm. And that ongoing segment that won't vote Republican, I'm, as you say, that really will be a continuing albatross. Now, we'll have to see how much it is in 2022. We'll have to see who the nominate, nominate, uh, uh, nomination goes to in 2024, whether it's Trump or somebody else. Uh, we'll see. But uh, but yes, it's a continuing albatross because they are going to lose some significant sliver of Republican voters simply because they they won't vote for a Trump dominated party. What what do you think the biggest thing this committee. The biggest news that this committee has uncovered, there's been a lot, but could, could you boil it down to a couple of things? Well, I certainly think the number one the extraordinary and multifaceted 
involvement of Donald Trump in the events leading up to, on, and after January 6th. So that's number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, the number of people around Donald Trump who knew the truth, went to him, told him his claims were nonsensical, uh, and tried to do the right thing, get him to do the right thing, and when they finally couldn't convince him, or they were sickened by January 6th, uh, they resigned. Mm. I mean, it's an extraordinary number of people we're talking about here at the most senior levels of the government. Now, not everybody, of course, but, you know, uh, the attorney general, a variety of cabinet members, senior White House officials, people in the council's office. Um, so I think those two things uh, stand out to me more than anything else. And then I'd say number three, uh, the here the committee has brought to the public's attention an awful lot of video yes. from January 6th that really is gut-wrenching yeah, and- in terms of what people said and the attacks that the police were under and just the sheer nature of the out-of-control violence. So I'd say, I'd say those three things. Yeah. And very shaky few weeks for the Republic as we watched. Uh, Larry Haas, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Appreciate this, and we'll continue to watch. Thank you. Very good. See ya. We're back in just a moment. Stay with us. News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. It's good for you overall. Yeah, this is great. This is It's a dream, man. The headline is Riskin' It All. Yeah, I think that's where we're going with this. With Dan Riskin. And we are joined now by Dan Riskin, CTV Science and Technology Specialist. Hi, Dan. How are you? I am great. How are you doing? I'm good. Now, this uh, we're going to talk about sperm. We now, are. Yeah. And, you know, I know this because I saw the cartoons where the sperm go after the egg. So, therefore, right. you're, you're, you're going to challenge that cartoonish notion in my, in my mind about how babies are created. Yeah, well, I'm not going to shake it up too much. It still takes <laughs> a sperm and an egg that come together and make a baby. That well, part hasn't good. changed. That's good. But yeah. The way we tell the story about the, the race for the egg and the sperm competing with each other... That is a story that gets a lot of attention uh, from people who study the way we think, because there are a lot of ways that we sort of tell that story that aren't really about the sperm and the egg. They're much more about how we perceive men and women and attributes that we ascribe to those unicellular organisms um, that fit our our thoughts of gender. And so, you know, back in about the 90s, there was this sort of realization that we'd been maybe telling the story in a in a sexist way, right? I mean, yes, the sperm swim, and yes, the egg doesn't swim. So we sort of, it was a convenient story to say, well, you've got these strong sperm, they're fighting, they're duking it out, and the, whoever's strongest gets to the egg, and the egg is just this fat thing that sits there and, and basically gets jumped on and Passively. takes whoever wins the race. Passively. And in the 90s, people said, can we tell the story in another way that's still biologically accurate, but maybe doesn't have all that gendered nonsense in it? And so they talk, it's called the aggressive egg hypothesis. And it talks about how the, the female body is basically built to move the sperm into the right region and how the egg is basically setting all that up to select 
for the best possible sperm. And so the egg is really jumping on the prize and taking the prize uh, that it has selected with, you know, the whole female body working in concert to select for the best one. And so this is a different way of telling that story. But there's a new study that's just come out that that actually adds another twist to this. And that is the idea that all the sperm are are independently competing against one another the way we all compete in the workforce. And maybe we have a bias that we've introduced the story that way. And so this latest study shows that actually sometimes sperm cooperate. Sometimes a bunch of sperm will clump up and form like a big, massive tangle of sperm. And as a group, they will tend to swim in a more straight line towards where they're trying to go than individual sperm, which tend to take more of a zigzaggy route. Well, and so clearly this was a study that, that was done. That that group of sperm are a bunch of socialists, clearly. Right, exactly. They're communists. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Well, I mean, they're all related to each other, right? And so yes. this is an interesting thing, especially if you have a situation where, and you get this in a lot of animals, um, where basically a female might mate with multiple males. Mm-hmm. Um, how who gets to the egg first is is it's called sperm competition. And so if you have a situation like that, you know, you may not be the sperm that gets there, but it's sure better for one of your siblings to get there than to have you know, that other guy's sperm make it. And so for sperm to work together makes evolutionary sense. And so this latest study shows with some really compelling video uh, and measurements that they made of the travel speeds and times of these sperm, that if sperm are working together, they actually get a group benefit. And it's not always the lone individual that beat the odds and got there, but it's the one that works as part of a team. So the second part of this discussion that you just described is, is, is an actual change in understanding of how things happen. The previous narrative uh, is where uh, we, we, we need to change how we describe this story because it's got built-in biases. Right. So if we tell the story in a way that reinforces gender stereotypes, then we are not necessarily on purpose. But what we're doing is we're, we're, we're not necessarily helping to people to come to that, uh, to, that, to that information in a way that keeps them open to all the possibilities. And Got so it. if we sort of, if we're telling the story as a way that we can imagine the little soldiers, I mean, there's a Woody Allen film, uh, everything you want to know about sex, but we're afraid to ask. And yeah. I know Woody Allen's been canceled and all that stuff, but it's, it's a funny scene where all the sperm are lining up and he's having an existential crisis about where he's going to go. And if this is the real thing or just a rehearsal and, uh, and you know, the way we tell that story, it's fun but it doesn't necessarily keep it biologically accurate. And so it's important to remember that, uh, you know, the, the caricatures that we tell in our heads aren't necessarily biologically the way things happen. Fair enough. I am a huge fan of e-bikes because uh, they are getting people on two wheels and moving again in a very, very big way. Yeah. People who would normally uh, shy away from the big hills and not get any uh, time on the bike at all. Lots of people out there, I think they're fantastic. And there's, yes. there's a new development here about about... Another way uh, a battery-operated device can help keep people moving. Yes, this is exciting. And I totally agree with you on the e-bike thing. On the one hand, when you're riding your bike and you get passed by one of those e-bikes, it's easy to get grumpy and say, (laughs) well, that's not fair. They've got a battery. But that's not the point. People that ride e-bikes are out 50% more than they would be if they didn't have e-bikes. And so way more people are getting out there. And you might get less exercise from an e-bike, but you're getting more exercise than you do from sitting at home. So uh, e-bikes are great, and this is a boot that does the same thing for walking. Um, when I was studying biomechanics at Cornell University uh, for my PhD, I had a guy on my committee who was obsessed with the energy of walking and how you could make that more efficient. And he was obsessed with the idea that if it's basically all comes down to how much energy you lose when your heel hits the ground 
and how much of that energy can be recuperated by uh, springs that load in the Achilles tendon. And so he was building these robots that you could, they look like bipedal robots from Star Wars, and you put them at the top of a ramp and they would walk down the ramp, swinging their arms, totally driven by gravity. And he was doing it all to try to figure out where the energy losses were so that someday they could build a boot that would give that energy back. And that boot has now been invented. And so this uh, paper has just come out in Nature. It's a student of the guy who was on my committee, who is now a professor at Stanford. Wow. Um, and this, this guy at Stanford has built a boot. And basically the way it works is you wear these boots. They weigh about a pound and a half each. Uh, and there's a battery pack around your waist and some wires. And while you're walking, every time you get to the part of the step cycle where you push off the ground, where your Achilles tendon would be used, um, a motor gives a little boost and gives you a little bit of a kick to help you. And it ends up reducing how much energy it is. So people who wear these boots, just like an e-bike, it's easier. They end up going faster, about 10% faster is their their walking speed. And they use about 17% less energy to walk a given distance than they do if they're not wearing the boots. So it's a pair of boots that make walking easier. And uh, it's so it, the fact that it's all self-contained and that it works in the real world um, is a very exciting, pardon the pun, step forward in this yeah. technology. And we may soon be seeing this for soldiers who have to walk long distances or for, for letter carriers or for all kinds of different uh, people that are out walking great distances. This might be a huge, uh, huge help. And also, I would assume someone who maybe struggles with mobility or is on the verge of be becoming less mobile, this could give them, this technology could give them the nudge to keep them moving. Absolutely. I mean, the danger with exoskeletons, and that's what they call it, is an exoskeleton, because you're basically wearing a frame on the outside of your foot and it's giving energy to you. The danger with these things is always this idea that it's all of a sudden going to rip your arm out or you know, rip your legs out because it's going to give too much force at the wrong moment. And so a huge part of the design is how to make that safe and how to make sure it's not giving too much of a kick at the wrong time and how you can avoid injury that way. Um, but really, I mean, if you're a fan of the Alien franchise in, in the movies, when Ripley is wearing that big, huge yeah. exoskeleton suit, it's basically a step in that direction. And it's it's very exciting that they figured out how to do it and that it it's a, it's a huge accomplishment to make it feel better than normal walking. It's just like the e-bike, but for walking. Dan Riskin, always great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I always love talking to you. All right, we'll talk soon. That's Dan Riskin, and thanks for being here. I'm Graham Richardson. This is News Talk Today. Stay with us.